0: to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. Like I said, I'm going to talk about love, sex, romance, and family, and I'm going to come in a completely different angle than what you might have expected. Coming a couple of, when did I preach last? In the beginning of July, I spoke about God's at war. And I'm going to recap just very quickly about that. So I'm coming not today with a how to sermon. Okay, there's a lot of how to advice in church and outside of church with regards to relationship. Um, last time, now let me, let me recap for you what we, what we looked at last time. But in, in essence, it's about defeating the idols that war for our hearts. That is the bottom line. It's to defeat any idol that competes for our love and affection um, for for God. Okay. So in the previous episode, I said we're going to do like a trilogy, um, moving away from series sermons and just coming back to trilogies. Okay. All right. Um, that's the end thing, like Hunger Games and those things. <laughs> All right. So for the, we started at looking at what is the issue. If there's an issue in our lives. Often. Very often, I can't say that always our issues are related to idolatry, but often the issue comes back to the issue of idolatry. There's something that we've put a higher value to than, than God, or than God's opinion or God's word over that specific, that specific thing. And, and we specifically had a look at this extract out of Exodus, where God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments, up in the mountain and at the time where, where, where moses oh, god gives moses the ten commandments about you shall have make no other idols for yourselves out of, out of x y and z at that time what are the Israelites doing down at the bottom they're making a golden calf and they're worshiping this golden calf okay all right. Now, obviously, obviously, that's not the calf that they were worshipping. the Next one. Um, all right. So, there was a little bit of a story that we were that we were looking at, um, is where the Israelites are buying down to this golden calf. And I, for for the sake of time, there's a lot of a lot of stuff that I can cover, and I'm going to try and keep it to the point because I can digress, um, and I shouldn't today. Okay. So, what happened there is that. The Israelites came to Aaron and said, this fellow Moses are taking too long. Um, Make for us God that will lead us going further. So he says, give me all your golden earrings. And they throw it in the fire and they make this golden image. Moses comes down, furious, and uh, asks Aaron, what did the Israelites do to you? And his response is, no. We threw this gold into the fire and out jumped this golden calf. Kind of a thing. Anyway, the illustration that we made there was that, in essence, we can make an idol of our, of anything in our lives. That, back there, and I, and I showed you a couple of these pictures. You can just flip through them, Emmanuel. This is when we were in India, in, I think, 2007 or somewhere. Going, next one. This is like in India. Obviously, Hinduism is a big thing, so it's lots of idols, lots of temples. Next one. That's on Varanasi and the Ganges River. Ectic place. Next one. And this was also an interesting, this is also in a temple of where people worship Jesus, but also amongst a lot of other gods. They believed in Jesus, but believed that Jesus is one of a whole lot of other gods. This is a physical manifestation of often what in our sphere happens in our hearts. is that there's other things that we ascribe more value to than what God ascribes value to. Um, and often, we try and bring Jesus in the mix of all sorts of other gods that we also worship. Um, like, yes, I go to church on Sunday, but Monday to Friday, God doesn't have a say about how I live my life. Um, those, those kinds of things. All right, Next one. So, we can actually make idols out of anything. And the issue is that we, that we specifically looked at is, what is it that lies beneath the surface? And that, that is uh, often idolatry. And then the battleground is really our hearts. It's not in a temple or anything. The battleground for idolatry and for our affection is, is in our hearts. And if you walk upstream, you have a specific issue. Let's say, uh, what, what was the example that we used? If you have a, you have a gambling problem, for example... The issue is probably not so much gambling in itself, but if you walk upstream towards where the source of this thing comes from, it's most likely a idolatrous relationship with money. And a, a continuous need and want for more. So that was just an illustration. If you walk upstream with an issue or something that you struggle with, most often it comes back to something that you're ascribing a certain amount of value to, which is not according to God's, to God's will. And then this next point, I'm just going to stand still here for two or three minutes because it's it's critical that we get this for the rest of the series as well. And this is about God being a jealous God. And obviously, often we think about jealousy in a very negative in a very negative way. Um, but in a biblical way, we, we we looked at this at this scripture Exodus 20 verse two to five. This is where God is giving Moses the ten commandments. And this is where he specifically talks about idols verse 4 Exodus 20 You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything heaven in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below you shall not bow down to them or worship them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God and I, illustr- I illustrated this point like this um, um Maybe just read the next, the next one as well. Exodus 34. This is later in this whole conversation. Verse 14 says, God speaking to Moses again, do not worship any other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And I explain this very simply, just like this. My wife, who wants to do, be the... I won't use Gerald again. I use them at the students. Um, Ruan. Okay. If Ruan comes... And he flirts with my wife. Okay. If there's not a holy, godly jealousy and anger that rises up within me um, because of what is happening, what, do, what does that communicate to the value of the, of the covenant that I have with my wife? What does that communicate to my wife if there isn't, if there isn't some sort of response from my side about this? And this is this that is uh, maybe in a small way the, a picture of why God says I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Not because He's on a on a trip or He's egotistic or anything like that. It's because He knows He's in a covenant relationship with us, and if something else takes the place of our affection, our love, etc. If he doesn't do something about it, or if he, he, there isn't a, a, a holy jealousy that rises up in it, what does it communicate to the value that he ascribes to that covenant relationship that he has with? So that point is critical for us to understand when we talk about idol uh, about idol worship, about idols in our lives. It's not to spoil our fun. It's not because he just wants us to follow a whole bunch of rules, etc. It's because he knows that what we need the most can be found in him. And this word the worship this morning was so special. It's amazing just to come into God's presence and just know that there's nothing else that satisfies like God himself. Like drinking from that living water. And I, I was just I was thinking about this um, during the worship it was like just like God so just satisfies and just quiets down everything when we find that fulfillment in God and we look for that fulfillment in God. Okay, so it's critical that we get that. Because if we don't get that, anything that we look at going forward is going to look like our God is just a spoil sport. Or God just don't want me to have fun. Or God doesn't want me to have the best in the world, etc. The moment something becomes more important than God, then we are going to think like that. Okay. All right. So that was a very critical thing that we that we did need to get. And then i just this specific scripture in Revelation 2, to, verse 2 to 5, spoke about, um, it was a letter to a, to a church, um, and the church was doing a whole lot of good things, um, but God said this thing, bottom line, he said to them, from verse 5, Remember therefore, or from verse 4, Nevertheless I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent so the question or the response to to this that if you identify that there is something that is not in place there is something that you have put as your first love what is it that you do this sort of needs to trigger Um, Kurt you just close those doors there for us just for Celsius Day of Races. is coming in there (laughs) thanks um what needs to go off in the back of your mind is if you identify something like this is repent and return to god and do the first works what do you do at first you come to the foot of the cross of jesus You repent and you come back to jesus make jesus again your first love you don't have to go and sit on an ash heap and sulk about something that you've messed up okay just come back to god as you are and he comes and he he fixes us all right, here's two quotes that uh, if you have a pen and paper, you're welcome to jot this down. One is from Tim Killer. Whatever you idolize, you will eventually destroy it, and it will destroy you. And then Kyle Ironman, this guy, this, most of what I'm getting this, um, this series out of is a goal, uh, book called Gods at War, and he says, Idols are defeated not by being removed, but by being replaced. All right. And then lastly, out of this previous episode, we are going to look at three different temples that represents sort of like a theme. And within each one of these three temples, there are three sort of main gods, if you want to call it like that, which we're going to actually delve into a little bit. And I want you just to do self-introspection. Is there possibility or is there a little bit of this idol worship in my life with a specific god again the first temple that we looked at was the temple of pleasure and i'm going to go through the intro of that because the the final the one that i want to just stand still with today stems from that read with me there this is just an extract out of that book there have always been games stories jokes and songs but today pleasure is something close to the whole theme of daily living we even expect our daily work to be pleasurable much more than our ancestors did. In a society based on agriculture, nobody said, you know what? Plowing and tending cattle aren't enough fun for me. But these days, if it isn't fun, if it isn't pleasurable, if we don't want to do it. It's, it's a common theme, right? Anybody relate to that? No, none of you, right? Yeah. Okay. When we experience pleasure, There's a part of us that thinks, yes, this is what I was made for. Even if you haven't experienced much pleasure in your life, you've experienced enough to know that you want more. Thus begins the quest for the elusive narcotic of pleasure. And so the gods of pleasure whisper, wouldn't you like to scratch that itch? Wouldn't you like to satisfy that appetite? Wouldn't you like to experience that feeling? Wouldn't you like to get that high I have what you are looking for right here. And so we walk into the temple of pleasure. Yeah, then we looked at two specific gods within the temple of pleasure. I'm not going to go into detail of that. The first one was the God of food. Okay, Lovely food. It's great. God made it. Um, God didn't just make carrots. And therefore it's not just purely functional. He made it nice and pleasurable. It's just that enjoy it in the right Context in the right order. And then the God of entertainment. Um, We had a long chat about the God of entertainment, and uh, I'm going to not go into into that again today. Now, the third one, which is where we're going to start today, is the God of sex. All right. So, some of you are like, can we talk about sex in church? Well, I can guarantee you, if we don't talk about it in church, you're going to go and talk about it the wrong places. Okay? So, Let's talk about it here in a holy, consecrated environment, and let's take it home to also be holy and consecrated. Amen? Yeah. All right. First of all, sex is good. Can I hear an amen? Okay. (laughs) I meant from the married people. Okay. Sex was God's idea. It brings pleasure and intimacy, and of course, it produces children in accordance with God's plan. Just as we've seen with food, God designed sex in such a way that it doesn't just accomplish a purpose, it also brings pleasure. He is a father who likes to give his children good things. All his gifts point us back to him. Or at least that's how it should work. The gift should, should cause us to love and worship the giver more deeply. But all too easily God's gifts to us end up being his greatest competition. And I sort of just added this line. It says, never allow the gift to become more important than the giver. So the context is, is it is good, it is right, it is holy, God has given it. But the moment we take it outside of the context of what God has intended it for, you can destroy it, and it will destroy you. If you take sex outside of the context of marriage, outside of the context of covenant, what inevitably happens? Destruction. Either for yourself, or your offspring, or your significant other, or whatever. Whatever. Okay, I'm gonna. We're gonna stand still at three hectic stories in the Bible. Okay, so strap in. Um, maybe just have a glance next to you and just smile at them and say it's gonna be okay. And then we're gonna have a look at this at this story. <clears throat> all right, all right. This is like a fairy. This is a fairy story about a fairy tale gone wrong in the Bible. Okay. Two Samuel thirteen verse one to four. And I'm not I'm, in, in all three of these passages of scripture that I'm gonna look at at these three three these three gods, I am just sort of gonna leapfrog through the scripture, not because the other parts are irrelevant or anything, it's just because of the lack of time. Okay. So write down these scriptures and go and read the whole story. It is amazing just to see what happened there. Okay. Two Samuel thirteen from verse one and you can write down probably until the end of the chapter. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Okay, just the context here. David had a couple of wives. Amnon was one of the wives' sons. So it's David's son. He fell in love with his half-sister, in essence. Okay, uh, Amnon fell in love with his half-sister. Absalom is Tamar's full brother, both Same father, same mother. Okay. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin and at least, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had an advisor named that guy, uh, (laughs) Jonadab, son of Shemiah, David's brother. Okay, so in essence, it's his cousin. Okay. Um, Jonah was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, "Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard, morning after morning? Won't you, uh, won't you tell me?" Amnon said to him, "I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister." And to just give you a little bit of an overview of what happened there before we pick up on the script uh, on some of the verses later, is that what happens in between is that he sort of he, he follows his advice and he makes he, he pretends to be ill. To be sick in bed. And then David, his father comes to him and says, what is wrong? He says, I'm ill. Won't you ask my sister Tamar to come and make food for me here in my presence and tend to me? And then David does that and she comes and tends tends to him. Um, And eventually he asks all of the other servants to depart out of the room. Um, And then... um, Basically, she came, she brought him the food, he moved the food aside, he took a hold of her, and this is where we pick up the story in verse 14. But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. It's a hectic story. Um, here's a question like, Some of you are like thinking well, how, does, how does this relate to me? How does this relate to I'll, I'll never do that I can probably guarantee you that Amnon thought the same thing That i would probably never do something like that And the problem is here Is that he idolized his sister and he idolized the idea of having sex with her He idolized sex And the preceding verses talks about he loved her, but he really didn't love her. Because what he did was he lusted after her. Um, And you see it in the moment that he actually got what he wanted. What happened? Shame kicked in. Guilt kicked in. And therefore he hated the source. He thought it was going to fulfill him. Once he gets there, he thought it was going to fulfill him. And what happened is the inverse happened. Guilt and shame kicked in. And she's and and he recognized her as the source of that guilt and shame, and he hated her. It's the feeling that went with it that he hated. And if and if you think like I have a God, there isn't. I mean, surely sex con—it's not that big a God in our society. And if you just go check what is this, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, industry um, around us is the is is the, the pornography industry, is the, the sex industry and so on. I don't have to labor that point. Um, but I mean, just just in South Africa, stats uh, talk about that one in every three women was has been, right, in South Africa. And it is hectic. And I mean, some of you have been a some of you have been a victim of people making sex an idol. Some of you have gone through this and you've experienced the destruction that sex brings outside of the Outside of the protection boundaries of covenant That God has actually instituted And uh, and I want to say There's good news for you Is that God does bring healing in those areas um, I messed up To a certain degree before I got married And God came Brought restoration, brought forgiveness, brought wholeness um, And if you're not married Yeah, you can stand One day getting married As holy and pure as God Has, has called you to be Even if you've messed up on the one side, or even if you've been a um, on the receiving end of of abuse even if you have been raped God brings healing um, so I want to encourage you uh, it's it was not God's will per se for you to get raped okay but God can take that he can turn it around he can bring the healing and he can and he can bring something beautiful ashes he can bring that beauty out of a situation that, that is that has brought destruction the thing about Pleasure, and, and, and this relates to sex as well, is that there's a little bit of a paradox often, and I'm going to read you this extract as well. When something good comes, becomes a god, the, the pleasure it brings dies in the process. Pleasure has this unique trait: the more intensely you chase it, the less likely you are to catch it. The god of sexual pleasure promises you incredible satisfaction as you read magazines and surf websites, as you keep going a little farther. With your boyfriend or girlfriend, you obsess over what it would be like to push the envelope, to go ahead and give it, give in to your desires, to grab that moment of ecstasy. But what happens? The God delivers the opposite of what is promised. Instead of satisfaction, you experience emptiness and an almost immediate hunger for something more. Instead of closeness and intimacy, you experience a strange sense of something that feels like loneliness. You can't shake the impression that you've given away some part of yourself that you can't get back. I'm not going to ask you to put up your hands, but I'm guessing that th- at least three quarters of people here can relate to that in some sort of way. I can relate to that. Okay? So, here's the thing What do we do when we identify that this has become an idol in our lives? We repent. We return to Jesus and find our pleasure first and foremost in Jesus himself. And if you're married here, then sex has got a beautiful place inside of your marriage. And Maybe there's been a little bit of destruction or it's broad destruction maybe in your relationship. Bring that area to God. Find your satisfaction first and foremost in God. And trust God to bring healing and restoration in your life in these areas. Amen. Is counting the cost, and then Albert, oh, you can come up so long. A, de- a decrease, uh, long-term effect of viewing pornography. This is just on the side here. A decrease satis- satisfaction with one's sexual partner. A decrease in how much one values faithfulness, and a major increase in the importance of sex without attachment. What are you sacrificing on the altar of oh, for this God? And here's just the question if you're struggling with pornography you say how much money are you spending on it how much time are you spending on it you are knocking your identity you are allowing the enemy to knock your identity time after time and time after time and you're knocking intimacy with god so i want to i want to really encourage you if you're struggling with this area to get out of it um, amen yeah. So, on a little bit of a lighter note, we're going to move on to the next temple. And uh, that's why I've asked Albert to, to come up. We're moving on to the temple of love. Not that he is the epitome of um, the temple of love. Okay. Um, but he's going to call it a ray or something like that. Okay. He's going to sing us some songs. He's going to do a medley for us. Okay. And you have an opportunity to identify which five songs. He's doing. All right. Great. Thanks, Albert. Sure. All right. So where, where do we go from here? Okay. Temple of love. Our pop culture and our, and our entertainment culture is full of um, love songs and romantic movies and soapies, etc. that revolves around romance, revolves around Love. If you just turn on the radio, I can guarantee you 80% of the songs that you're going to listen to, either is about how in love this person is, or how heartbroken this person is. Um, and then the other 20% sort of, I don't know, I, I, I actually listened to the radio this week a little bit just to pick up on some of the modern songs, and wow, um, that I wouldn't describe those things as love, like Pitbull and... And those guys, it, it doesn't really sound like love. Um, they're in the club, and I don't know what's going on. Um, anyways, All right, I want to I read you. Oh, yeah, here's a question. We, um, guys, you're also allowed to answer this. Um, which is your most favorite romantic movie? All right, yeah, I got a notebook here. I only heard notebook. What was he Titanic, Notting Hill. Sorry, I just walked to remember. I don't think I'd die and walk to remember. All right, all right, all right, all right. Okay, okay. Point made. All right. Braveheart. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Transformers. <laughs> Teenage mutant ninja turtles. Michelangelo is heavily deeply in love with April. Didn't you didn't you notice it when you some of you are like, what? Never mind. Alright. Okay, so point made. Limerence. Here's a, here's a study by a psychologist in the 1970s, alright? Not a Christian Christian psychologist or anything. Or not that I know of. I'll read you this part. It refers to the phenomenon of falling Madly, passionately in love, including what happens chemically in the body. Have you ever been lovesick? Limerence describes a powerful emotional attachment that comes over a person who is powerfully attracted to some other person. It's an overpowering infatuation that involves intrusive thinking. Not being able to concentrate on any subject, but the object of our love. Putting the other on a pedestal agonizing over whether the feelings are reciprocated, fear of rejection, and some physical effects such as heart palpitations, loss of appetite, and paralyzing shyness around the object of affection. Dopamine, the body's pleasure chemical, surges during limerence, so that love as a kind of stimulant effect. Energy is increased, appetite decreased, it's a blissful feeling, but a two-edged sword. Rejection can cause a dangerous crash. The increase in dopamine can bring about a decrease of serotonin, a chemical that helps us make wise decisions. This helps to explain why people are head over, who are head over heels will do crazy, spontaneous things they would never ordinarily do. Any of you guys have done stupid things when you were in love? We had a guy in our res um, that, in in Stellenbosch, in our residence, he stole a forklift. And he went, and he he took the forklift, he had this idea, he's going to serenade for his girlfriend. He's going to go to a window, and he's going to raise himself up to his window, and he's going to serenade for her. But a couple of the sums that he didn't make is that whilst driving the forklift, there are speed bumps in Stellenbosch. So he sort of goes like this over the speed bumps. And eventually, before he got to the residence, he realized it is it maybe not such a good idea. So he went to our rival res. He lined the forklift up and then he jumped off and he just let it go against their res. Anyways, you do stupid things when you're in love. Okay. Later on, that... Uh, the guys from that residence wanted to take the forklift back. In the meantime, the police was notified that this thing is stolen and that guy got arrested. But that's besides the story. Okay. Um, okay, here's a, here's, a, here's a second of the three um, stories out of scripture that I want us to, to look at. And this is a little bit like a the bachelor BC kind of a scenario or Bursukha BC. BC. go. Genesis 29, verse 16 to 34. And once again, I'm going I'm to leapfrog a little bit through these, through these scriptures. Okay, now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Doing stupid things while being in love. Right? I worked seven years for her. Anyway. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Just note that he he doesn't actually say yes. He doesn't say yes. I'll give you Rachel when you work seven. He says, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. He actually doesn't agree to the terms and conditions that, that Jacob was talking about. Anyway, let's move on. In verse 20, we pick up. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. Imagine saying that to your father-in-law. Um, Verse 23, but when evening came, he took his daughter Leah, this is Laban, took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and Jacob made love to her. Jacob must have been very drunk and it must have been very dark. (laughs) When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Just on the side here, Jacob. What does what does Jacob mean? What does his name mean? It literally means "grasps at the heel," and it's a like a, it's a, a Hebrew idiom for deceives. Okay, so he deceived both his brother, his twin brother Esau, and his father Isaac. Yes, Isaac um, to get the inheritance. Right here, he's asking Laban, "Why have you deceived me?" Watch Laban's response. Laban replied. It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. In other words, it's not our custom around here to put the younger one before the older one. Exactly what Jacob did back home. Now, I don't know if Isaac and Esau tweeted or something that Laban got got a hold of the news or whatever. Anyway, finish the daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the, the younger one also. In return for another seven years of work. So basically he's on honeymoon for a week with Leah. And then he enters into another honeymoon with with Rachel after that. Jacob made love to Rachel also. And his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. And let's just stand still there for a moment. You have to feel for Leah in the story, right? Imagine... Your father giving you as a bride, and you must know full well that he's been working seven years for your sister, Rachel. Here comes the bridal week, or the, the week, and here is, her father gives Leah to Jacob. She knows full well that he worked for Rachel. Uh, that, that must have been heavy. Um, and then we see this, this part in Scripture that that Rachel that Jacob loved Rachel, more than he loved Leah, um, and I mean it must have been all her life that there's been a little bit of a not not, not so much, I mean we, we don't pick that up that much out of Scripture, but Rachel being the the beautiful one, and Leah being the not so beautiful one, the one that can't see as far, um, there, there must have been a little bit of a a little bit of a thorn in the side there about about this being all my life, and now we get married to the same person as well, and now our spouse is actually loving her as well. Okay, so here I want to actually just focus on this little bit of Leah, and we pick up how she felt, um, how she names her sons. The names that she gives her sons, we pick up a little bit about how is it that she actually deals with this little bit of rejection actually. And okay, from verse 31, it says, When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. And here we pick up, I'm just going to throw up a summary of Leah's sons, what she, what she calls his sons. First, Reuben. Uh, Reuben's fiancé is laughing at, <laughs> at him there. Okay, so it says, The Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. And Simeon, because the Lord Heard that I am not loved, he gave me the son too. and Levi, now at least my husband will become attached to me, because I've born him three sons. And just very quickly, we pick up there that she feels that she's not being seen by her husband, she's not being heard by her husband, and she does not feel attached, his attachment to her. We pick that up, and she she is the gifts that she's giving in children, what we're getting from the Lord. Every time she's hoping that this is going to result, this is going to make that he is actually going to to now see me, now hear me, now be attached to me. And very significantly, in the fourth son that she gets, she makes a turn, um, which she calls Judah. And And the response is, this time I will praise the Lord. And very quickly, very interesting, if you go to Matthew 1 and you go read the genealogy of Jesus... Where does Jesus' lineage come from? From Judah. The moment Leah turned to God and chose to find her satisfaction and her first love in God, God changed. I don't think that the circumstance, her natural circumstances changed after that, but she was fulfilled. And out of that, there was actually destiny born out of that because from there, Jesus' lineage actually comes, comes from. It's interesting, right? Um. And here's the thing is that some of us here, we need to lay down this desire that one day when I get married, that person is going to fulfill me. I call it the, I call it the Jerry Maguire syndrome. You complete me. Some of you that are married also had that notion, and you got married and you realized that it doesn't actually work like that. Two incomplete people don't make one complete person. In marriage, it works with multiplication, not with addition. One times one equals one. A half times a half equals a quarter. Some of you are like, what now? What did he just say? <laughs> okay? So you need to be complete and whole in God first. Otherwise, you're going to take your halfness into marriage and end up with less and you're going to to be severely disappointed so if you remember anything out of this story is is remember jerry Maguire. okay it's it doesn't work like that you complete me doesn't work you need to be complete in jesus christ alone and first and therefore then you can actually fulfill your role as husband or wife for your spouse amen Last one, I am running severely out of time, but this is an important one to stand still at. Okay, read with me Genesis twenty two verse one to twelve. This is the God of family. God we we all know family has been given is given by God, etc. Genesis twenty two verse one to twelve. Okay, also skipping through the verses. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. This is God speaking to Abraham. And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up. Interesting there that God spoke to him. He didn't fast and pray for weeks and weeks and weeks before he actually obeyed. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. It's a three-day journey that they actually need to go for him to do that. Imagine what goes through your mind. If you have a conviction about you need to sacrifice your own son, your only son whom you love, and on, you can imagine in three days' time what goes through your mind. Abraham took the wood. Okay, this is now up in the mountain. took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. Just note, just on the side here, just note when you go and read this portion of Scripture on your own, just note the similarities between what happened there and what happened with Jesus on the cross. Just on the side. Note here that Isaac had to carry the wood, which obviously in Jesus was a representation of the cross. Pick up on verse 9. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abram built an altar there and arranged the wood on it, he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on the top, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took, his, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. He says, Here I am. He replied, Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. I mean, Abraham's response to Isaac initially was, don't worry, my son, the Lord will provide. Now, no matter how much faith Abraham had, by the time you get up on the mountain and you don't see the sacrifice that you are standing in faith for, you actually have to put your money where your mouth is and actually be obedient to God. Abraham went as far as being willing to kill his own son. In obedience to God, radical, complete obedience. Now that wasn't God um, that was just a test to Abraham and he, he did provide in there he provided the sacrifice. But that Abraham didn't I mean we don't we don't know everything about what went through Abraham's mind, but the bottom line of the story is that we need to be willing to lay down our children. Be willing. I I believe that it's scriptural and it's biblical that we should look after our children and raise them, etc., etc. But they cannot occupy the primary space of affection, love, and affection from us as parents. That was actually supposed to only be Jesus' space. And we, how does how does it play out in our lives? For us that have children, we run the risk that we organize all of our lives. Around what our children physically need. No, my that no church time is my child's nap time, so I can't go to church. For example, um, now there's there's obviously limitations to what I'm saying. If a child is ill or the baby was just born, and it's a completely different ballgame. But just hear this in context: is that we need to organise our children around the purposes of God, and not our lives around our children. Amen. But this goes the other way around. For us, all of us, are children of someone. I mean, anybody that doesn't know that, I will pray for you afterwards. Okay, you have parents. Okay, you weren't dropped here by aliens. Well, maybe some of you. But um, the thing, the point I'm making is that we should be willing to be radically obedient to God, even if it opposes something that our parents say. We're like, okay, but how, how does the scripture about honoring our parents come in? You can be obedient to God and still honor your parents. For example, when I got baptized um, in water, it um, was a year just after metric. I grew up in the Dutch Reformed Church. People in the church loved Jesus, a lot of them. Uh, had a living relationship with God, etc. So I'm not knocking any, any denomination or anything. I'm just just sketching the background. And when I gave my life to Christ... Um, and when I started walking in a living relationship with Christ, I felt God saying that I needed to be baptized in water. Now obviously, I knew that that is contrary to what how I grew up and my parents might have an issue with it. So I went to them and I said, Mom, Dad, I appreciate what you did when you dedicated me, when you baptized me as a baby, but I really feel that it's that God is laying on my heart to get baptized. Um so I communicated in an honoring way. I honor you for what you did. But this is what I feel God is laying on my heart to do. Um, and interestingly enough, it was sort of the inverse of what I experienced. I thought that I was going to get more flack from the one than the other one. and It was actually the opposite way around. And the one just said, no, whatever you feel God is leading you to do, go for it. Um, for us, for, for maybe for some of our students is if there is witchcraft or sangomas and those things in our past, or not even in our past, in our families, and you came to into a living relationship with Christ, and your parents still want to go and do those practices and want your involvement in it, you need to make a conscious decision to say that I am no longer involved in that stuff. And you can get rejected out of your family because of that. Um, And that is the the, the kind of obedience that God calls us to. I want to come back to what we are talking about here today. And we're talking about idols, and specifically the three idols that we're talking about here today. Is that some of us have made sex or romance or family or all of the above gods in our lives. We've placed them as more important in our lives than God himself than Jesus himself. And those things are good but they they are good when it when those things are organized around God. And we don't organize God around those things. So what do we do? We repent and we come back to our first love. All of our devotion, all of our affection, we channel towards God. He enables us then to give devotion and affection to our spouses, to our children, to whoever it is that That you may be dating or considering to ask out for coffee. God is in those things. Invite God into those things. It's good. God has created those things to be good. Just make sure you have the right things organized around God.